Matthew chapter 7. Tonight we finish up the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, yeah, we have been tracking through on and off in between practices over, I don't know, six months or so. To recap, Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount, which is all of his most important teachings in one place. I would argue it is the greatest single collective teaching in the history of human civilization. And he ends it not with a pep talk, not with a rally, not with a touching story, not with an acronym. He ends it with a series of warnings. Tonight on the dock, we have the last one. Take a look at chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd was amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. To begin, how about a little bit of sociology? Are you up for that? Three ideas from three key thinkers over the last few decades. First off, Buckminster Fuller. There he is, ladies and gentlemen. Come on. Started out as an architect, invented the geodesic dome. Anybody been to Disney World? Yep, he's the man right there. Became a futurist and systems theorist in his well-known book, Critical Path, he came up with what he called the knowledge doubling curve. He estimated that, and this has been done a number of times since, from the year of Jesus' birth, it took 1,500 years for the cumulative knowledge in all of human civilization to double. But from there, it took 250 years for it to double again. From there, it doubled every 100 years up until World War II. After that, it doubled every 25 years until the 90s, where it was at every 12 to 13 months. And now, most estimates, depending on which Google strategist you read, put the number right about 12 hours. So do the math. If you were born the same year as Jesus of Nazareth, it would take a millennia and a half for everything that there is to know to double. If you're born tomorrow morning, hypothetical scenario, (laughs) it would double before you went to bed that night. So thought one, we have more information than ever before. For good reason, ours is called the information age. Secondly, Thomas Friedman, journalist for the New York Times, in his best-selling book a few years ago, Thank You for Being Late, he writes about what he calls the age of acceleration. That's his moniker for our cultural moment. Everything has sped up to this breakneck speed, in particular due to technology. This graph from his work shows that technology is increasing faster than the human capacity to adapt. We literally can't evolve fast enough to keep up with the pace of change. And this has created an age of anxiety where at least a low-level anxiety is the new normal. We all feel chronically behind the curve, or is that just me? running to play catch up, stressed out and overtired because of the pace of change. Thought two, we feel overwhelmed by all of this information. Finally, Neil Postman, 
cultural commentator, media critic from NYU. His book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, is one of the most important books I've ever read to get my head around our society. And in it, he coined the phrase information to action ratio. By that, he meant how much information we put into action in our life. He writes this, the tie between information and action has been severed. Information is now a commodity that can be bought and sold or used as a form of entertainment or worn like a garment to enhance one's status. It comes indiscriminately, directed at no one in particular, disconnected from usefulness. We are glutted with information, drowning in information, have no control over it, and don't know what to do with it. And it's fascinating, he points to the invention not of the computer, personal computer, or the internet, or Wi-Fi, or the smartphone, but to a very earlier technology, to the telegraph as the turning point in this aspect of our society. With the telegraph, for the first time, information, in particular news, could travel across the world at lightning speed. And so news became disconnected from your time and place. Before that, pretty much the only news that you heard about was local from your town. The odds are your town was not a mega city, it was a town with a few hundred people, maybe if it was a large one, a few thousand people. And if you heard bad news, it was usually word of mouth, hey, Joe's barn is on fire, right? You would not start a hashtag about, you know, no more barn, barn fires on our watch. Like, you know what I mean? Our generation will stop barn fires or whatever. You would not post a blog series. You would not hold a lecture series. You would not start a nonprofit. You would grab your bucket and run down to Joe's barn and start to put out the fire. And whatever you missed, you would show up the next morning to help Joe with his barn. You could, my point is you could do something about the bad news that you heard. Now we hear all sorts of news. Just think of the last few days, the war in Syria, which I still can't get my head around. The trade standoff with China, troops on the border with Mexico, a certain someone and Twitter, the book coming out Tuesday. Most of us have zero ability to do anything about it. So listen, Postman said what that creates in the human psyche is a state of being, listen carefully, used to hearing vast amounts of information a lot of it bad, then even being moved by a lot of that information, even emotionally, whether it's bad news or self-help or psychology or science, whatever, just anything, moved by it and then doing absolutely nothing about it. As the saying goes, in one ear and out the other, what Neil Postman called a low information to action ratio. So to recap, three ideas. One, we have more information than ever before. Two, we feel overwhelmed by the explosion of information in our age. And three, we're used to hearing all of this information, even being moved by it, and then doing diddly squat about it. Did I just say that? Oh my goodness. <laughs> doing nothing about it. But for Jesus of Nazareth, if you want to apprentice under him to experience life in what he called the kingdom of the heavens, the reality of what God is on about, then this just won't do. Let's work back through his teaching line by line. Take a look again at 24. Therefore, meaning in light of all of that, the Sermon on the Mount, everyone who hears these words of mine, by these words of mine, Jesus means the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, let's just go, let's dive deep. Can I nerd out on you? Can I have three minutes to just unleash my inner homeschooler? Is that okay? <laughs> like just three minutes, that's all I ask, and then we'll get back to how you get a date, okay? I promise which I'm no help on at all. Um, 
So let me pull back the curtain on Matthew's literary genius. The writers of the Bible are far more intelligent than we give them credit for. Case in point, if you remember from the beginning of our series, this was a year ago now, the Gospel of Matthew is divided into five literary blocks, and each block ends with an in-depth teaching from Jesus, and each teaching ends with this catchphrase, we read it in 28, quote, when Jesus had finished saying these things, end quote. Every time you read that five times, a little literary clue. Okay, you're at the end of the first block. We're about to start block two. We get into it next week, and it's not a teaching. It's all healing stories from Jesus in the kingdom. Now, the five blocks of Matthew as a whole mirror the five books of the Torah, the Bible of the day, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the five teachings of Jesus in Matthew mirror Moses' five sermons in Deuteronomy. This is like dream within a dream level of interpretation of like sophistication, all right? It's Matthew's creative literary way of saying that Jesus is a new Moses leading a new Exodus, teaching a new Torah to a new Israel and a new kingdom. Now, stay with me. It gets, that's just warm up, all right? I'm just getting started. One of the reasons Matthew does this is because numerology was popular at the time, all over the ancient world, from Israel all the way to India. Think of Hinduism. It, it was very popular. And so it comes as no surprise that we find numerology in the Sermon on the Mount. If you outline the Sermon on the Mount, if I had a whiteboard up here, um, and you were to outline it, there's basically an intro the Beatitudes, blessed are, you know. Then there's a thesis. You're the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Then there is 14 teachings that all flow together that make up the main body of the sermon. And then there's an outro made up of three warnings. And we're working through the last one right now. Now, each of the 14 teachings that make up the main body of the Sermon on the Mount has what New Testament scholars call a triadic structure or a three, that's just a pretentious way of saying a three-part structure. Here's language from Dr. Glenn Stassen, an ethicist and expert on the Sermon on the Mount from Fuller Seminary. First, there is one, a traditional teaching. So think of the first one. You have heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, right? Then, second is a diagnosis of the vicious cycle that is the human condition. The way that we get sucked in a vicious cycle. In that case, it was anger that then leads to contempt, where you look down your nose, not at somebody's behavior, but at somebody's character, and you write the whole person off from this other-centered view, which leads to then a third transforming initiative. Jesus always ends each of the 14 teachings with a small, creative, practical, like down-to-earth next step if you want to break free from the vicious cycle of the human condition. So in that case, it's when you're at the temple, leave your gift in the altar, go back home, be reconciled, and then come and offer your gift. Now, listen, seven and three were both numbers in numerology that signified perfection. And there are 14 sets of three. Dr. Stassen writes this, quote, to Matthew in his Jewish culture, seven is a number of completeness and goodness, like the seven days in which God created the earth. 14 is double completeness and goodness. Three is also a number of completeness. So three times 14 is triply doubly complete. It is good, really good. <laughs> are you picking up what Jesus is putting down? All right, nerd out moment over. All of that to say, these words of mine, end quote, i.e. the Sermon on the Mount, is not all that Jesus has to say about life in the kingdom of the heavens, but it is the best of the best of the best 
in the Gospel of Matthew and in the New Testament of whole. It's like the axis point or the center of gravity for Jesus' vision of kingdom life. Hence Jesus' next line. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Now that phrase is one word in Greek. It's the word poieo. Can you say that? Very good. And poieo can be translated puts them into practice or practices them or does them or acts on them or follows them or even obeys them. That word is used 22 times in the Sermon on the Mount and 10 of those are in the outro. It's just lost in translation from Greek to English, but it's the same word in verse, seven, uh, verse 18. A good tree cannot poieo, bad fruit. It's translated bear here. And a bad tree cannot poieo, good fruit. Every tree that does not poieo, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's the same word used in 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who poieos, the will of my Father who is in heaven who does, who acts on, who follows, who obeys the will of my Father in heaven. Meaning, all three warnings that make up the outro to the Sermon on the Mount, if you've been around the last few weeks, through all of them, the running theme is it's not enough to just hear all of this information, this sermon, to take notes, to get your head around it, play around with the Greek, the Hebrew. Great, that's not enough. At the end, you have to go out and poieo. You have to go do something about it. You have to put it into practice. Work it into the warp and woof of your everyday life. You have to obey it. Now, to drive his point home, Jesus next tells a parable or story about life in the kingdom. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like, here comes the parable, a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, does not poieto them, doesn't do anything with them, doesn't obey them, doesn't live them out, it's like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, same thing, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, but it fell with a great crash. How many of you grew up in the church? A lot of you, I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, how many of you are old enough to remember like Sunday school, any of that? Anybody old enough for the flannel graph or is that just me and... Yeah, okay. And that makes me feel a bit better about myself. It's like you think it would make a comeback, like, you know, like a hipster flannel. It's flannel. I mean, I know that's a couple years old now, but whatever, you know, you think. And uh, if that's you, you're at a disadvantage right now. Because familiarity, it doesn't always breed contempt, but it usually does breed indifference and apathy and a dull ear. So please, just as we work through this, let Jesus arrest your heart all over again, because this is not a cute Sunday school flannel graph story. This is a dire, stark, sober, weighty, and profound warning. It's a parable about two home builders. One in the story is wise and the other is foolish. The word wise is phronimos in Greek, which can also be translated smart or intelligent or thoughtful or enlightened. The word foolish, on the other hand, is moros, where we get the word moron. And, true story, and it can be translated stupid 
or unintelligent or not thoughtful or unenlightened. Meaning, in Greek, it's not the same in English, but in Greek and in Jesus' worldview, these aren't just moral words, they are mental words. Dale Bruner, New Testament scholar, puts it this way, Jesus does not contrast good and bad in this parable, but thoughtful and foolish. There is an intelligence in morality, and there is a morality in genuine intelligence. I said this a week or two ago, and at the risk of, you know, saying it again, I think it is an idea that we need to recapture in our day and age with the myth of objectivity that is alive and well in journalism, in politics, in science, it's the worst in religion, but all over the place. Um, all of the data is in. There's no, um, there is consensus here. There's no doubt, there's no gray area. The data is in. Human, we just don't like to hear it. Human beings are not nearly as rational as we were led to believe out of the Enlightenment. Our vision of reality is not 2020. Our minds are corrupted by sin, not just our bodies. We think immoral thoughts in our mind just like we have immoral desires in our body. Now, in Jesus' day, it was the same, and somebody who thought well about how to live was called a phronimos man or woman, a wise man or woman. And somebody who was just not very thoughtful, think of Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living, right? That was a few hundred years before Jesus. Somebody who just kind of went around, went about life and was unexamined and not all that thoughtful was called a fool. In fact, this language of the wise and the foolish were buzzwords both in the Hebrew wisdom literature. So think of the book of Proverbs where there's a very similar parable, but it's a woman, not a man. Uh, wisdom is personified as a woman, naturally, not a man. And um, we have this beautiful parable about a wise woman, or with wisdom, a woman builds her house, but with foolishness, the foolish woman tears her down, hers down with her own hands. So this was language out of the Hebrew wisdom tradition, and it was language out of Greek philosophy and the virtue ethics of the ancient Greco-Roman world. My point is Jesus is tapping into an ongoing conversation in his day, inside and outside of Israel, about who is wise and who is a fool, who's thoughtful and enlightened, and who is yet to evolve into higher consciousness whose vision of the good life is on par with reality and whose is still out of whack. And he does this with a parable about two home builders or about a home. Now in Jesus' day, a home was a common metaphor for your life. Homes were a bit different than in our, than in our day in at least three ways. One, they were not single family but multi-generational. You lived with two to three generations. Two, they were not bought and sold, unless if you lived inside the walls of a Jerusalem or an Ephesus, most people lived out in the country. It was a rural or an agrarian society, and most land was ancestral, and so you lived on your ancestors' land, and when it was time for you to start a family, you either moved into a home there or you made an addition onto your father's home. And three, they weren't just for, you know, R&R &R to catch up on wild, wild country or whatever it is that you're into right now, which is crazy, by the way. Do you know the bombing was two blocks from here? It's a whole other sermon, but and doesn't say who does the bombing. We're gonna talk about that in this next podcast that Mark Sayers and I are working on. It doesn't say, and they twist the whole story, and Netflix is like, a it's ridiculous. It's so, <laughs> seriously, it's anti-Christian. You have no idea. There's like, it doesn't say who did the bombing. There's a reason it doesn't say who did the bombing. 
Mm, ready for conspiracy theory? Just stay, pay attention. It's coming to a podcast near you. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> Three, they weren't just <laughs> going somewhere with this. Your home wasn't just for R&R. Um, you ran your business out of your home as a farmer, as a merchant, as a fisherman or woman, as whatever it was that you made a living from. So listen, your house came to symbolize your life as a whole. Now, Jesus says the wise person, the smart, intelligent, thoughtful person, builds the house of their life on the foundation or the bedrock of practicing his teachings as laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. The foolish person who's just not all that sharp yet, hasn't really thought about life all that much, isn't that enlightened, hears all of Jesus' teachings, may like it, may not like it, you have no idea, but just kind of doesn't do anything about it. Notice that Jesus doesn't say why. Maybe they are just too busy. Sorry, Jesus, I'm in grad school. I have little children. I'm working three jobs. I have to commute. Maybe they're just tired or worn out, dealing with trauma from the past, something, but it's just too hard right now, overwhelming. Maybe they prefer another teacher and another way of life to Rabbi Jesus and to his way of life. Jesus doesn't say. That's brilliant, by the way. He lets you find yourself in the story. Are you the wise man? Are you the fool? Are you somewhere in the middle, a little bit of both? And where are you at in practicing his teachings? He just lets you imagine yourself and you fill in the blanks. Now, in the short run, here's the terrifying thing about the parable. In the short run, you can't tell the difference between those who practice Jesus' teachings, house on the rock, and those who don't, house on the sand. From a distance, they look exactly the same. You might both have the same job, the same firm downtown. You might both cycle over the Hawthorne Bridge. Morning, Sarah. Morning, John. Whatever. Where did those names come from? I don't know, but <laughs> you might both live in a nice apartment off division. Might both have a dog. Saturday morning, you walk your dog, get your coffee at your favorite spot, whatever, post up, do your thing. From, the di from a distance, you might look exactly the same until the flood comes, until the moment of truth. The imagery of a flood comes right out of Jesus' world as well. Galilee was and still is a dry, arid place, if you've ever been there, but there are wadis that cut through the topography and because of that cause flash floods, like out of the blue, it's actually quite dangerous. Because of building codes, we don't worry much about this anymore, but it was a huge problem all over the world for millennia. Even now, I remember, um, again, dating myself, but I moved up from the Bay Area with my family when I was a teenager, and uh, my parents were kind of, you know, middle class down in the Bay, but were flush with all this California equity. And so lifelong dream to build a house, they built this house. And I remember, I think I was 15 years old or whatever, building this house. I remember the foundation. In California, you don't have like a basement or a foundation. You just like pour some concrete and enjoy the sun. Here, it's like three months of excavation so you don't die, all right? <laughs> So I just remember digging deep into the side of the sail and this foundation, thinking, that's kind of weird. Okay, whatever. And then 1996, the flood. Anybody around? Anybody remember that? There was, if you're new to the city, there was a, there was a flood in our city, basically. 1996, crazy. You think this year it's raining. You have no idea, right? It was crazy. And uh, this was out in the suburbs. And there was another neighborhood, one over, that was kind of like ours, but nicer. And... Um, 
and there was these all brand new, beautiful custom homes. And one morning, like a couple of days into this torrential flood all over the city, and they were sandbags all downtown, and the river was overflowing its banks. We were driving down, and this house that we would drive by every single day on the way to school, it was gone. And it had been built, beautiful, brand new custom home on the edge of this like ravine out in Tigard, and the rain came, and it literally washed all the way off the foundation, and the entire house, you could not even see it from the road anymore. It went down and crashed on the bottom of the gully. Front page of the Oregonian, lawsuit, everybody was mad at everybody. And I still remember, I was 16 years old, I still remember to this day that vivid image of a house that was destroyed by a flood. That's with building codes. Imagine. Like, is there a deep meaning there? No, there's no deep meaning there at all. My point is, in Jesus' day, this was a regular, ongoing problem. And he uses this as a, a metaphor or kind of a word picture for m- most of church history. We've read this or interpreted this to mean some kind of a hardship. Ever since Augustine, there is an alternate interpretation where this flood is judgment day, and there's, there's good reason to believe that. But ever since at least the fourth century and a theologian by the name of Augustine, the imagery of a flood has always been interpreted to be some kind of a hardship in your life, a diagnosis, a tragedy, the loss of a loved one, unemployment, the death of a dream, bad news, some kind of catastrophe, some kind of a flood. And notice, it's not if this flood comes, but when this flood comes. The flood will come. I'm just here to encourage you tonight. (laughs) Jesus, you know, is brutally honest about the human condition. It's one of my favorite things about Jesus, and that might just mean I need more therapy. But I think in a day and age of self-help and the unhelpful pep talk, I think that Jesus is brutally honest that life is hard, whether you follow him or not. The wise and the fool both go through the same flood. Those that build a life on practicing the way of Jesus and those that do not build a life on practicing the way of Jesus both go through the flood. And I love that about Jesus. I find it refreshing, one, because it's honest, Two, because I think it rings true to the human condition. Life is hard. Even when it's good, it's still hard. And three, ironically, when you expect life to be easy and then it's not, it's way harder. Seriously. When you expect life to be hard, actually life's pretty good with Jesus and you get your way through it. So I love this about Jesus. He's so honest that his way does not lead you out of hardship but through hardship where the rise of the self-healthy, feel-good, prosperity gospel in the Western church that is spreading like wildfire. Please have your antenna up. No, this is a new idea that is not in line with the historic orthodox way of Jesus that is spreading all over the Western world. And I think it is a crisis of faith waiting to happen because the flood will come. And whatever it is, major or minor, it will shake the house of your life to the core and it will, listen, reveal what your life is actually built on and it will be either one of the best moments or one of the worst moments of your life. If your life is built on greed, on materialism, on competition to win, to get ahead at no matter the cost, it's built around sex or youth or beauty or your appearance or looking beautiful or whatever it is. 
that's built on popularity or what people think of you or how many people follow you, that's built on hedonism and pleasure and the good life, it's built on travel and the freedom to go anywhere and do anything you want, rather than built on life with Jesus of Nazareth, practicing his way to be human, then that flood, whatever it is for you or for me, it will reveal the bedrock that your life is built on. And if your life is built on anything other than Jesus and his way, it will, quote, fall with a great crash. That word great in Greek is megale. That's where we get the word mega. It will fall with a mega crash. We've all had front row seats, I'm guessing, to watch somebody's life implode. If not a family member, or cousin, or coworker, or boss, then at least if you have access to the internet, we all know a celebrity, right? A Bernie Madoff, a Harvey Weinstein, once at the top of the food chain, now one's in prison in that case, and the other is a pariah. We even have stories about that inside the church. I won't name names, but my guess is you could off the top of your head. How many of you know stories? Family, friends, maybe without the celebrity, you know, bedlam, but some kind of a story. And it's not always, it's not always a crisis. It's not always a scandal breaks and your text message chain starts to blow up. Sometimes it's just the slow unraveling, this cumulative effect of a life not built around practicing the way of Jesus that finally starts to catch up with somebody. Paul writes to his young protege, Timothy, the sins of some are obvious and go ahead of them. Would you agree with that? But the sins of others trail behind. Some people, you don't see it for a while. From a distance, it's a sunny day, it's blue sky, it's a very nice looking home. But the foundation is off. You can't see it. But time will tell. Uh, T and I are watching this. Somebody in our extended family right now, it's honestly just tragic. Um, there are two sisters in this family, and uh, they're both much older, kind of nearing the end of their life. One has spent her entire life following Jesus of Nazareth, and the other has been a cultural Christian for decades. And um, one's life is not easy, but is rich and full of grace. The other has been through multiple failed marriages, failed family, failed career, failed health, and, and there's no scandal, there's no breakdown, there was no, did you hear? But every time you're with this person, it's just, tra it's just tragic. Like coming to the end of your life, which should be some of the best years where you just sit back and enjoy the fruit of a life well lived, is instead regret, tragedy, living in the prison of the consequences of your own bad decision. And I, for one, don't sit there in judgment on this person. I take it as a sobering warning. Because I read those stories of people gone awry, and some of them are better men than I. Some of them are better women than you. Nobody is immune. Nobody is untouchable. Are you trying to scare us? Yes. I honestly think that if these stories <laughs> Like, where's the, where's the pep talk part? Is that coming? Somebody else is teaching next week, I promise, all right? <laughs> if these stories out of your life and right here in the story of Jesus don't scare you a little bit, they should. Not, not scare you in the sense of anxiety or paranoia or, you know, that kind of unhealthy fear. There is a healthy kind of fear 
The scriptures speak of the fear of God. My point is, not all fear is unhealthy. Some of it is the right, healthy, smart, emotional response to the reality of the world. This warning from Jesus of Nazareth should wake you up, should arrest my heart, should break us out of apathy, should get us asking hard, probing questions of our own life, not of so-and-so or my mom, or of our own life, and get us to take a long, hard look at the reality of our obedience or lack thereof to Jesus and his vision of humanity. We live in a day and age where, again, we have more information than ever before. We feel overwhelmed by all of the information, and we're used to hearing information and even being moved by it and then doing nothing about it. In that cultural moment, this is a much-needed wake-up call, that information alone does not equal transformation because knowing something is not the same as doing it, which is still not the same as wanting to do it. And Jesus' vision is not just an ideology, it's not just a set of ideas that you ascribe to or assent to in your head, it is a way of life, it is mind and it is body. It is, it's closer to a sport than it is to an ideology. It's closer to a lifestyle or a rhythm or routine, it is something that you do with your whole body, with your whole life. So information is not enough. Jesus was a rabbi, he was a teacher. But pay close attention to his teaching. His point was not just to cram more information into your already overstuffed head. It's not just for you to know the Sermon on the Mount, know the Bible as a whole, and learn Greek, and learn Hebrew, and know this tradition from that tradition, and this interpretation from that interpretation. That's great, but Jesus' end goal isn't to inform you, it's to transform you into somebody who is like him, and in doing so, like your real true self. And that takes more than information transfer. You can't just think your way, sermon your way, podcast your way, read your book way, your way to transformation. This is why we've rebuilt our entire church over the last two years around this idea of uh, the academic language for it is spiritual formation. All we mean by that is the process by which we change to become more like Jesus and our real true self, or the process of transformation. I don't have time to reteach you this, come to our vision series in the fall, but you know this is our working theory of spiritual formation, that we are formed by teaching, what I'm doing right now, by practice, by community, and by the Holy Spirit. This entire paradigm comes out of kind of our synthesis of the New Testament and psychology, but it comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. Did you know that? So this entire paradigm is from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the teaching. The Sermon on the Mount is a teaching. Three chapters of it. Jesus was a teacher. We're big fans. Practice. Jesus begins and he ends the Sermon on the Mount with this idea of practice. What's the last thing he says in the thesis right before the first of the 14 teachings? Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then what's the very last thing he says at the end? Whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into what? Practice. Ah, you're wise. Whoever hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, not so much. So Jesus begins and he ends the Sermon on the Mount with this idea of practice. If it was a library, the bookends are practice. Meaning what? Meaning Jesus assumes that this manifesto for life in the kingdom of God will take you a lifetime of practice. You don't just read like, do not worry, and be like, oh cool, I'll stop doing that. <laughs> don't look at a woman lustfully, as a woman as an object of sexual gratification to turn her into a thing for me to get, oh, oh that's, that's right, that's lame, done. 
won't do it anymore. <laughs> How's that working for you? This is how our Western world, by the way, thinks that transformation happens. How, sadly, a lot of the Western church thinks that transformation happens. It's this false formula. I would say it's information plus inspiration plus willpower equals change. Information, you're inspired, great. Go out and try really hard to not worry anymore, to not get angry, to not lust. And that only works on really small changes. Like, I've tried it on flossing daily. It doesn't even work on that. <laughs> Seriously, I still don't floss daily. Don't tell anybody. Floss the ones you want to keep, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, apparently I'm in for dentures, right? <laughs> I can't even get that formula to work on floss, much less on anxiety or lust or greed or contentment or life in community. Does that make sense? And again, willpower is great. Well, that's, uh, this is a whole other teaching series. My point is, takes a life of practice, and not just practice, community. So again, this is lost in translation from Greek to English, not in a bad way, you can trust the translation, but in English we don't have a plural you, unless if you're from the South, Bethany's gone tonight, y'all, right? Um, but in English, like the language, we don't have a plural you. So in, <laughs> don't tell her I said that, all right? In Greek, there's a singular and a plural you, and pretty much every single you in the Sermon on the Mount, and really all of the New Testament, is plural. You are the light of the world. Not you as in me. You as in Bridgetown Church. As in the church in Portland and around the world. You are the light of the world. Meaning Jesus assumes, one, this will take a lifetime of practice, and two, this will take a community to pull it off. Not you by your lonesome. And finally, Jesus assumes the Holy Spirit. The last of the 14 teachings is what? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Meaning you need access to a person and a power and a presence that is beyond you to animate you from the inside out to live out this way of life. My point is, all of this comes from the Sermon on the Mount. This paradigm shift in our church came about, uh, in part, there's more than one reason, but because I, by default, I'm a Bible teacher. I grew up in a church tradition where the Bible was central. The church I grew up in literally had Bible church in the name. And I have had to learn the hard way. I've had to eat a little bit of humble pie and to realize that Bible teaching does not necessarily transform people. And again, that's not because it's a bad thing. It's the beginning, but it's not the middle, much less the end. I I know a whole lot of people that have been around church, have gone to church every single Sunday for decades, who know the Bible really well, and are still racked by anxiety, are still driven by a father wound, getting identity from accomplishment or accumulation rather than the love of the Father in heaven, are still not present to God, to the person in front of them, to their family, to their own soul, are still not self-aware, are not open and honest about their shadow side, dealing with it with humility and ruthless vulnerability, but they know Romans really good. And I'm all for Romans. If I'm ever smart enough to teach it, I will. Don't get your hopes up. <laughs> but knowing Romans is not the same thing as living the way of Jesus of Nazareth. This is where church is beautiful. What you're at is beautiful. I mean, just worshiping with you tonight watching you pray for each other and come for prayer. I just, 
I'm tired by the end of Sunday. I'm wiped, right? But man, just, I love you. You're beautiful. But as a mate, well, thank you. That was a little awkward, <laughs> but I take that. Thank you. But as beautiful as this is, it's not enough for transformation. It's just not enough. You know, some people undervalue the Sunday gatherings and the teaching of the scriptures, you know, and are here once a month or once every six weeks, or sometimes I hear people say, oh, I've, I haven't been there in a few weeks, but I catch the podcast, as if this is just like a delivery vehicle for a podcast or something, and not like a meeting with the living God. <laughs> podcast that. <laughs> um, but other people, I mean, we're across the spectrum here, right? Some people undervalue, other people overvalue. Or maybe not overvalue Sunday gatherings, because I'm, I'm here, I'm in, all in, and I'm glad you're here too. Um, but I think some people overestimate the capacity of a Sunday gathering and of the teaching of the scriptures, even worship by singing, an encounter with God, to transform you at the level that you ache for. And the reality, Jesus won't do it all in an hour and a half on a Sunday night with little or no partnership from you. It's just not what he's like. He has too high of an opinion of your humanity. He created you as a free, intelligent being that has a will that is the center of your person, shaped by God himself, and he wants to join with you and your community by the Holy Spirit to cultivate that will and to shape you or reshape you into the kind of person that can be empowered by the Spirit of God to do whatever is in your heart. Amen. And that takes more than singing songs and hearing sermons, both of which are powerful. That was almost a moment. <laughs> My point is, here's all I'm saying. Thank you for your patience with me. Here's all I'm saying. In a cultural moment where a low information to action ratio is the norm, it's our default. Like, we, we don't, we're used to, we come to church, we have this encounter with God, somebody prophesied over me, I had this encounter, and then three days later, it's like, what? Oh yeah, I forgot about that. When that's the new normal, this teaching of Jesus should arrest your heart. Are you or are you not building your life on the practice of the way of Jesus, on obedience to the will of the Father? Father, what is your will? Yes, I say yes. I line my will with your will. I trust your vision of humanity over my vision of humanity, and I, I obey it. I follow it, I act on it, I poieo it. Put another way, is there something waiting in the docket of your life that the Spirit of God has moved you toward that you have yet to act on? Is there something that God told you to do a day ago, a week ago, a decade ago, and you have yet to act on it? And you wonder, why am I stuck? Maybe that's why. We're in this practice, we still are, of forgiving as we have been forgiven. Is there something that the Spirit of God has moved you to in a conversation with your Bridgetown community, in a time of listening prayer at church, just on your morning commute, something came to mind that you felt was from the Holy Spirit? Make restitution to that person. Apologize to that person. Honor your father or your mother. Confess that sin. Talk to somebody about that. Get into therapy. Join a community. I don't know what it is. 
But is there something there in the docket of your mind? Have you done anything with it? Or is it just a memory or a journal entry or an empty idea that you were inspired by? This is a teaching of Jesus. This is a warning to rest your heart, to wake up and point oh, do it. Put it into practice. End of the warning, 28, or end of the teaching. When Jesus had finished saying these things, it's our little literary clue, we're at the end of block one, the crowds, thousands of people there, were amazed at his teaching, right? And you would be too, blown away. Who, what the heck? Because, listen, he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The rabbinic style of the day was to quote another rabbi who came before you. In fact, that, um, that still is a lot of the rabbinic style, depending on the shade of Judaism. Your authority was vested in those that came before you. Well, Rabbi so-and-so said this, that, or the other. Jesus did not do that once. You never read a story about Jesus saying, well, Rabbi so-and-so said. Jesus just would stand up and say, truly I tell you, boom. Truth bomb, as kids these days say. And he would just name reality. He would just put language to the way life actually works. He would paint a picture with words of reality, and it would ring true. Now, the, the word or the label for that kind of resonance with reality is authority. And we're averse to authority in our culture. But we forget that Jesus' authority was not rooted in a title or an org chart, or a gender, or a hierarchy, or some oppressive system. His authority was rooted in the truth of his words and the truth of his life example. I love Eugene Peterson's translation of that last line. It was apparent that he was living everything he was saying. That is the most potent kind of spiritual authority. It has nothing to do with who you studied under or where you went to university or what degree you have or how advanced it is or who says what about you. When you stand up, known or unknown, educated or uneducated, on an org chart or not on an org chart, and you speak truth, and it corresponds to reality, and it corresponds to your own life, there is an authority, a weight with it. And Jesus had that authority, had that weight. He was a, more than just a rabbi, more than just a Hebrew sage or a Greek philosopher. He was more than just the conduit of truth. He was the source of truth itself. It's easy to miss that again in the English translation or just if you've read this before, it's easy to miss it, but actually some of Jesus' most blatant claims to be the embodiment of God himself, to be the creator and the creation in the same place, God and humanity in the same mind and body are actually right here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He makes all sorts of claims. He claims that he is the gate and his teaching is the way to life forever. He claims that on Judgment Day, people will say to him, 21, Lord, Lord. That's Kyrios in Greek. That was the, that's what you called God. People will say that to him. He claims that on Judgment Day, people who don't know him will be sent away from him. That is the judgment. You're sent away from him, not in relationship with him. He claims that in the meantime, people work miracles, prophesy, cast out demons, all of this in his name not in God's name, in his name, and then he claims, he has the audacity to claim that his teaching is the foundation to erect your life on. No rabbi had ever said that before. 
It's common to say that the Torah was the foundation to erect your life on. Nobody, no rabbi had ever said, oh, actually, my teaching is even more important than the Torah. My reading of Torah is the most important one. My teaching and my life and my way is the foundation to erect your life upon. That, was, that would have been blasphemy or at least delusional megalomania unless you were the creator and the creation in the same place. God and humanity in the same mind and body, unless if your authority was rooted in the fact that you were the one who set the cosmos into motion, who designed and fabricated the human psyche, who knows better than anybody in the room tonight how human beings are to flourish and thrive and to put on display the life that we all ache for in his life that was nothing like what we think is the good life. To end, your house is your life. Everybody builds a life. You can't not. And this is where the metaphor breaks down. Some of you are like, yeah, but can I like live with my parents for a while until I pay off my school loans? The metaphor breaks down, all right? In the metaphor, you, you're, you, you have to build a life. You are building a life. The question isn't, are you building a life? It's what are you building your life on? Underneath all of the distraction and the fanfare and the day-to-day, what's the bedrock of your life built on? Is it Jesus and practicing his way to be human in community and empowered by the Holy Spirit? Or is it something or somebody else that will not survive the flood if and when it comes? Jesus ends the greatest teaching in all of human history, not with a pep talk, not with a rah-rah, go out and change the world, not with a funny story and a laugh. He ends it with a sober, weighty, beautiful warning with a probing question for you to ask yourself. Can you imagine if I ever did that? If I ended a sermon this way? Can you imagine that? With a megalay crash? Imagine if I stood up here, hypothetical scenario, gave the best teaching you've ever heard, very hypothetical scenario. (laughs) It's brilliant. I'm like, you're blown away at my authority, right? From the truth, from my own life. And then at the very end, I say, hey, whoever hears all of these words of mine, everything that I just said over the last 40 minutes, and puts them into practice, you're like a wise person who built his house on the rock. Rain came, all of that, 1996 all over again. And you were fine. In fact, your life was more than fine. It revealed the best part of who you are. But anyone who hears everything that I just put in front of you over the last few minutes, this whole manifesto for a way to be human that is countercultural but is better than anything the world has on offer, anyone who hears that and does not put it into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. After party at Tilt, (laughs) Alpha's Wednesday night, 
You have Jesus' teachings. What will you do with them? Grace and peace.